Hello, this is the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Right now, Vanguard Court Watch operates in three counties in California, including San Francisco and Sacramento. Our goal is to shine a light on ordinary injustice in the court system. This podcast is hoping to go a step further and shine a spotlight on criminal justice reform on a national level. In recent years, California has put forward a number of criminal justice reforms. One of those is felony murder rule reform through SB 1437. Last September, Governor Brown signed SB 1437. Senator Nancy Skinner from Berkeley, her historic fix to California's felony murder rule narrows the definition of felony murder so that individuals are charged appropriately for the crimes they actually commit. Under California's long-standing felony murder rule, a person who participated in any portion of certain felonies that result in a death could be charged with first-degree murder. In practice, this meant that even if someone was unaware that killing would or did take place, they could still have faced a first-degree murder charge and received a sentence that was equally as severe as one handed to the person who actually committed the murder. SB 1437 restricts the most serious murder charges to those who actually commit a murder, play a major role in a murder, or act with reckless indifference to human life. SB 1437 establishes a process for those who were sentenced under the previous felony murder statute to petition the court for a resentencing hearing. One of the big and unresolved questions in all of this has been whether the law is constitutional. The Attorney General, in a brief last month, has argued that it is, but that will be a matter for the courts. What we are starting to see in counties like San Francisco is cases coming forward to determine whether the defendant who was convicted under the felony murder rule is eligible for resentencing. That is what happened in San Francisco. Last week they had an evidentiary hearing and this week a judge ruled that both Michael Wilson and Emmett Lewis were entitled to resentencing under SB 1437. We have on our podcast San Francisco Deputy Public Defender Nikki Solis, who not only represented Emmett Lewis this week, but represented him when he went to trial back in 2006. In 2006, two men, Michael Wilson and Emmett Lewis, were convicted of first-degree felony murder after a woman in San Francisco was robbed. The two men then allegedly took off in their truck at speeds estimated between 47 and 53 miles an hour when they struck and killed the pedestrian, then collided first with a GMC truck and then a parked van further down the road before ending up at a 45-degree angle straddling a staircase. The victim of the robbery told investigators and eventually testified that a man who was later identified as Michael Wilson, came out of the passenger side, robbed her, took her purse, went back into the vehicle, and they took off. She identified him by his physical features as Mr. Wilson, 
uh, was later uh, identified. And so that was the basis for which the district attorney made the determination, at least eventually, that Mr. Wilson was the passenger, even though, as we now know, the physical evidence does not suggest that. Welcome to the show, Nikki Solis. Oh, thank you. Um, can you give us some background on Mr. Lewis and uh, his involvement in this case? Well, from the very start, we always believed in Emmett's innocence. And um, the way we approached the case was we knew the DA was going to go on an aiding and abetting theory because how I felt was they wanted two for one. They wanted two people to be convicted for life based on one person's conduct. So it was uh, undisputed that it was the co-defendant, Mr. Wilson, who took the purse. So obviously they wanted to put uh, Mr. Lewis in the driver's seat. And so what we did was approach it from fighting the case as to who the driver was. And that was our, our, our focus for the entirety of the case. And initially, when the case was charged, Mr. Wilson was charged with the driving under the influence um, charge with injury. So the initial charge involved a DUI by Mr. Wilson. So initially, the police and the prosecutor uh, believed and put forth a theory that Mr. Wilson was a driver. But once the preliminary hearing occurred and it became clear and unequivocal in the witness's mind, that Mr. Wilson was the purse snatcher, the prosecutor was then stuck and they had no theory under which to cause um, or to charge Mr. Lewis with a, with a life count or life case of murder. So they switched gears and basically tried to put the square peg in a round hole and decided that they were going to uh, go on this ridiculous theory that Mr. Lewis was the driver, which all the physical evidence um, said otherwise. So there was blood evidence, there was um, a shoe that was found on the passenger side of the car that was Mr. Lewis's, and they found Mr. Wilson climbing out of the driver's side, right? Well, yeah, they found the, the shoe for sure. We had the DNA evidence. We are the ones who compelled the DA to turn over the blood sample so that we, we, we could test it. When we did that motion to compel and it was granted, um, and we actually had to do a motion to compel. <laughs> they weren't turning it over initially. And when we succeeded on the motion to compel to, to, be test, uh, to do the DNA testing on the, the blood samples in the passenger compartment, on the headliner of the passenger compartment, and also on the um, glove, glove box of the passenger compartment, at that point they decided to test it. Their results came back. It was clear that his blood was on the passenger seat. I think that that was what was most significant because, yes, Mr. Wilson was um, actually hanging out of the driver's side window and his, uh, behind was behind the wheel of the car. And the, the purse or the, the lunchbox, that, um, the soft lunchbox, we called it the purse that he snatched, was actually to the left of him near his um, feet on the driver's side um, um, floorboard. So it was clear to us that he was not only the purse snatcher, but he was also the driver. But I think that because the car was tilted at an angle, um, you know, that evidence wasn't as significant to us 
as the blood evidence and the shoe evidence that was on the passenger side, both of which belonged to Mr. Lewis. So what was it that you had to do with regards to this 1437 hearing? Well, as soon as the law was passed, um, I the first thing that came to mind was this case because I thought there was such an injustice being a trial attorney. I don't know if you know this, but at the time I was eight months pregnant and um, and had a lot of uh, medical complications from it. But um, so after the verdict, I went on leave and I was just distraught. And it probably was a combination of a lot of things, but uh, including like postpartum hormones. But I was really um, uh, shocked by the verdict. And it, it was really something that was hard to think about every day. But I thought about it every day. And I'm not talking that's, there's no exaggeration. Every day I thought about it for months and months and months. And, and uh, so when the opportunity came to file the petition, uh, I did it even before January when the law went into effect because I thought like we had to right this wrong. And so as soon as December came along, I uh, got the, the, the forms um, and and filed it and uh, wrote Emmett a letter indicating to him that he should um, sign off on it and explain to him what was going on. And he was very happy to hear that there was hope after all. And so that's, um, that was the beginning of the process. And as the, the judge um, seemed to understand, the key to this whole thing was who the driver was, correct? Yes. Now that was the key, but back then that was not the key. The key was whether or not, or the question for the jury was whether or not they thought beyond a reasonable doubt that Emmett Lewis was aiding and abetting Michael Wilson. And so I, I did a new trial motion that sound that sounded very similar to this fourteen thirty seven petition and sounded very similar to this hearing, but we didn't present new evidence as we did at the fourteen thirty seven hearing. But what my argument at the new trial motion was, was, look, this verdict is contrary to the evidence. And the judge pointed out, no, it's not. The jury wasn't tasked with determining who the driver was. They were tasked with whether or not Mr. Lewis was aiding and abetting Mr. Wilson. And as the judge pointed out then, they could have found in a myriad of ways, myriad of ways that he was um, aiding and abetting that didn't necessarily include driving. But when the, the new law came along and, and we could petition for a rehearing to determine who the actual killer is, i.e. who the driver was, then it became clear that we could get this overturned. The part that's kind of confusing for me, at least when I was watching the, the judge rule, is it made complete sense uh, as you guys presented that Mr. Lewis was the passenger and not the driver. But if he was the passenger and not the driver, Mr. Wilson would have been the driver. Um, but both men uh, ended up being cleared by this. How, how is that? 
That was a decision by the district attorney's office, and that decision escapes me. I do not know why they made the tactical decision to keep going forward on a theory that was contrary to the evidence. So the San Francisco district attorney's office took the position that they had taken in trial, that Mr. Lewis was the driver and Mr. Wilson was the passenger who did the robbery. And I think that once again, they wanted two for one. They wanted to reassert this absurd theory that Mr. Lewis was the driver and therefore he should go back to prison and relief shouldn't be granted. And then they wanted to um, convince the judge that Mr. Wilson was the passenger who, um, though he didn't have an intent to kill, and even though this was an accidental death, he was involved in the commission of the crime and the planning of the crime, and he had a reckless indifference to human life. And, and that is what they had to prove. So they, the district attorney presented evidence, very scant, um, with regard to Mr. Wilson and his past, and that obviously didn't uh, go over well for them, and the judge found that they did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Wilson was a major participant and had a reckless indifference for human life. And so the judge had to deny um, the, the, the DA's um, position, basically, and I, should, I shouldn't state it like that. The judge had to grant the petition for both defendants and found that the DA neither proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Lewis was driver, nor did they prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Wilson was a major participant with a reckless indifference to human life. Now, if the district attorney had taken a different course and taken our position that Mr. Wilson was both the driver and the person who took the purse, the latter of which was undisputed, then they could potentially have um, had Mr. Wilson uh, petition denied and had him uh, not resentenced and had him sent back to prison, but they made that tactical decision for whatever reason. I don't know. It was very much contrary to the physical evidence and the DNA analysis. And the other thing that seemed to hurt them, ironically, is that they insisted on uh, merging the two cases together. If they had tried it uh, separately, uh, they probably would have at least gotten it uh, sustained on uh, Mr. Wilson. I don't know why they took the position they did. Um, I have to say that I wanted the cases to not be joined because I wanted the judge to make an independent decision as to both. And I have a great deal of respect for Judge Stewart. I've tried, I believe, three or four jury trials in front of him. And um, he's a very deliberative judge, and he's very smart, and he's very rigorous in, in his analysis. And so, of all people, I thought that this is a judge who could be intellectually honest and look at each case separately, even though they were being heard together. I didn't believe that when I did the trial as to the jury. As to the jury being able to do that, I felt they could not do that. And in fact, that's why I felt that Mr. Lewis was wrongfully convicted, because they couldn't separate Lewis from Wilson. Whereas in this instance, we believe that Judge Stewart could be intellectually honest enough to 
view them as separate when it came to the DA's burden. And he did. Yeah, I thought he was very good. In fact, uh, he went through the conflicting uh, eyewitness accounts uh, where you, you had basically the woman that was robbed uh, claiming that it was uh, Mr. Wilson robbed her, but he came out of the passenger side and another witness had originally come forward and said, no, he came out of the driver's side. So there's conflicting evidence there. And then he weighed that against the physical evidence, which in my right. view was overwhelming. Right. And I don't know if you saw the trial transcript, but we found that independent witness um, sometime later. We went to the bus stop at around the same time as when the incident happened. And I went with my intern who was nice enough and dedicated enough to go with me. And I think we left my house or met at my house at about 530 in the morning. And we went over there because the incident happened around that time. And we stayed there from 5.30 to 6.30 a.m., and that's where we found that second independent witness who contradicted the testimony of the, um, the victim of the robbery. And I think it's important to explain to those listening um, to this that this is not like a post-conviction case where um, the onus and the burden is on the appellants to prove that there was a mistake. Uh, the burden is still on the prosecutor here, correct? Yes. The beauty of it or the significance of 1437 is that the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person is either the killer or their major participant who acted with reckless indifference to human life. And that to me is the significance of it and why it's so fair is because the burden is still on them. And obviously they didn't meet their burden in this case. So then next week on Monday, I believe, uh, there will be a resentencing hearing. And at that point, what do you expect to happen? You know, because it's a case that's kind of a first, a groundbreaking thing, I will say that I know what I want to happen and I know um, how we can go about that. Um, there is the issue of parole and 1170.95G that allows for a period of parole. And what we don't want is Mr. Lewis having served 16 years in, pr in prison already to have to report to parole. There are a lot of aspects to parole I think people don't understand. When someone gets parole to a particular county, here it would be San Francisco, they're confined um, and restricted on where they can live. They don't necessarily get to live with family members and loved ones who can actually help them along and who can actually be a support system. Oftentimes, they're paroled to 111 Taylor Street, which is in the Tenderloin, which is at the heart of the drug trade here in San Francisco. So um, as a matter of fact, I was on my way there to take photos and videos in order to show the judge where Mr. Lewis or Mr. Wilson would go um, if they were to be paroled. And if parole doesn't approve of their the housing situation with family members, and it really is not a good situation to put um, new folks who have not been in the community for 16 years in the heart of the tenderloin at 111 Taylor Street. And so the, what we're fighting now is this idea of after having served 16 years in prison, Mr. Lewis will have to be on supervised parole. What we're saying is 
he has a family support system. He has um, folks who love him, who care about him, where he can live. He can live in San Francisco or he can live in, in, an, in another county where, where family members are. So there's no need for parole, especially since um, in this case, um, there's overwhelming evidence that he actually didn't commit the crime at all and wasn't uh, criminally culpable. Um, so that is what we're aiming for. But what it exactly will look like, I don't know. But what we're um, hoping for and what we're striving for is for the judge to um, not grant parole. And I think that the DA actually might concede that given the case law. Um, there's the Ballard case um, that we're relying on that uh, basically says that once you've exceeded the period of incarceration or confinement, and in this case for Mr. Lewis, it would be five years for the robbery since the jury found him guilty of robbery and that still stands. Um, and then there would have been a period of parole for three years. The maximum he could have done was eight years. And uh, now having done 16 years, he would, that would be, he's, he's done double of what he would have done with, uh, with the robbery conviction and the three years of parole. But would he get out on Monday? That is what we're hoping for. And so we've been working with the CDCR um, to try to get the paperwork in place. But what, um, what the problem is, is we were not sure, and they were not sure what paperwork to process. Do we process a parole paperwork or do we process a, a release paperwork? And what I told them is, I can't tell you that I'm not the judge. I will ask the judge and counsel, the district attorney and the co-defendants counsel. I will bring this issue up, which we have via, um, we've communicated via email. And what we're hoping for is a stipulation based on the Ballard case that um, there should be no period of parole and Mr. Lewis should go free after having served 16 years in prison for a, a homicide he didn't commit. So one of the cool things was um, you mentioned uh, earlier that you were eight months pregnant uh, when you uh, when you defended this case, and uh, you brought your son to court with you on Monday. I did. Um, you know, the world, the universe works in, in mysterious ways. At the previous hearing where I was hoping to win and, and um, after the closing argument, my son was with his other mom in, in Mexico and with his brother. But when they came back on Saturday and the hearing was continued and the decision was put off to Monday, I, I told him about it. And he said that he would like to come. And I said, you tried the case with me. You were with me the entirety of the time. So it's full circle that you get to see um, if there is justice after all. And, and he got to see that. And I think that he really appreciated it. They've been, to court with me before and he's been to court with me in utero obviously and um i think it was a, a very cool experience for him and having known that because it was a rough uh pregnancy not to get too personal or to focus on me here but it was something where i you know my medical status was touch and go and at one point when i told the the, the doctor you know can we just wait a little bit longer to induce me? And she said, no, do you want to die? And so it was that dire of a situation. So, 
you know, to all the working moms out there, you know, I, I sort of dedicate this to them. Wow. Um, and, and what a moment, uh, you know, it felt like watching an exoneration with the defendant hugging you at the end. Um, it, it was really a touching moment. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how hard that verdict was for me. Um, I'm sure that it was much harder for Mr. Lewis and his family. Um, and I, and he have, uh, kept corresponding over the years. I've uh, uh, ordered him care packages um, to whatever prison he was at. He would send um, a list of things that he requested, and I would send him these care packages. Um, and and that was just little or nothing as far as um, consolation or, or making or assuaging the feelings I had about the verdict. Um, so... It was definitely a moment where I I felt like, gosh, you know, I I, I, I was really overwhelmed by it um, and very grateful for it. Well, thanks so much for coming on our show and sharing that experience with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. We have now Jaku Wilson, a public defender in San Francisco. And can you explain what you did in the Emmett Lewis case? Well, uh, hi, David, and uh, nice to uh, talk to you, and thank you for all your coverage on uh, the Emmett Lewis case. Um, but I run the uh, 1437 unit in the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, and with regard to Mr. Lewis's case, uh, that was assigned to Nikki Solis, and that was because Nikki Solis is the one who tried the case back in 2006, and she happens to still be in this office. Uh, and because we don't have a budget for 1437, because at this time last year, it wasn't even out of the house nor signed by the governor, uh, we weren't able to ask for a budget this time last year because there was no, uh, there was no indication that it, we, we couldn't say and ask for the funds if this was not going to become law. Now it is law and we don't have funds, nor do a lot of other public defender's offices throughout uh, the, the nation. Uh, so or throughout the state. So now we've worked in collaboration with uh, Kecker um, is, is on these cases, and it was Nikki Solis and Kecker uh, who were working on this case, Emmett Lewis. And you've done a lot of work uh, already on 1437 cases. Why is what happened this week uh, with the Lewis and uh, Wilson case so important? Well, it's important because this was the first contested hearing in San Francisco where witnesses were called and there was a favorable ruling. There was one other case where no witnesses were called and there was not a favorable ruling. So this case actually made history in San Francisco. It's the first case under 1170.95, which is related to 1437. 1170.95 is the resentencing provision. Uh, where someone went to a hearing, witnesses were called, and it was a favorable outcome. And why are we seeing such a variability from county to county with some counties like San Francisco having evidentiary hearings and other counties like Yolo, where I live, um, denying the law's constitutionality? Because you have judges and DAs who believe that the law doesn't apply to them, that they're above the law, and that they don't have to carry it out. This was a bill 
passed through the Senate, passed through the Assembly, the governor signed. It is the law as we speak. It is now being challenged. We believe uh, in bad faith. And that's why there is a split. And essentially, you have a lot of DAs who just don't agree with the law. And you have a lot of judges who don't want to apply the law, even though they are to uphold and enforce the law. I mean, this is just crazy what's going on uh, throughout the state when it comes to 1437 and 1170.95 issues. Do you think eventually um, the courts are going to rule that this is constitutional? Well, I don't think I believe that they will rule that it's constitutional because that's been our belief since day one. Uh, this was uh, discussed with the, uh, the legislature, and they deemed that this was constitutional, or else they wouldn't have voted on a law that they believed was unconstitutional. The governor signed it, and the governor has attorneys, as well as we have vetted this. And we believe that the California Constitution supports us. We believe the legislature supports us. and The governor supported us. People of California have said that they want reform. The only folks who are opposed to this, in theory, are DAs and some judges who still act as DAs. I mean, that's the reality of it. You asked me for my opinion, I gave it to you. And in terms of Emmett Lewis, um, what did you see in the hearing uh, that that led you to believe that the judge uh, made the correct ruling here? Well, first of all, to me, um, you know, watching that, it, yes, we're calling it a hearing because that's what the statute says that it is, but it was treated as if it was a court trial, which was great. And the defense, as well as the prosecution, were able to give opening statements. The prosecution called a couple of witnesses. The defense called a witness. Each side presented evidence. Each side gave closing statements. And then the judge ultimately rendered a decision. And so this was phenomenal in the sense that we now had what I would call the equivalent of a court trial in this setting in which Mr. Lewis, as well as Mr. Wilson, ultimately prevailed and now are going to go home after spending 16 years in prison. And what the judge said is, hey, look, under the old law, it did not matter who was the driver or who was the passenger or who was the robber or who did what. As long as there was a death during the commission of a robbery, it was felony murder. Now the judge said, hey, look, I'm in a different position. Now that we're here for a hearing, the people must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Lewis was the driver, and beyond a reasonable doubt, that Mr. Wilson was a major participant who acted with reckless indifference. And the judge said, based on the evidence that was at trial 13 years ago, and based on the evidence today that was presented, and the contradictory statements of the witnesses and the forensic evidence that the state could not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Lewis was the driver. And the state could not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Wilson was a major participant who acted with reckless indifference. And that is huge 
because now we are talking about a fair law. The old felony murder was not fair because it divorced intent from action. We didn't look at the intent of either one of these folks. We didn't look at who was the driver, who caused the uh, fatal incident. It didn't matter. It just mattered that someone died. And now, 16 years later, justice was done, at least from the defense perspective, and at least from the legislature's perspective, and hopefully from the public's perspective, because now the government is required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's a really big thing. So they're not treating this as a post-conviction case where where the onus and the burden rests on the defense. They're treating this basically as they would have treated it at the start, um, that the burden of proof is on the prosecution and they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Let, let's assume we today was 13 years ago and the law that is now today was the law then at that trial in front of a jury the prosecution would now be required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt who the driver was and or in the alternative uh, that one of the participants acted as a major participant who acted with reckless uh, indifference and so with that being the case now, it wouldn't just be that someone died during the commission of a robbery or a burglary. And I'm not trying to downplay uh, what happened to uh, Mr. Atsit in this case. Uh, it was a tragedy. And, you know, there was a lost soul and a lost life in this case. And there are family members who still grieve. Uh, and so I'm not trying to downplay the tragedy of this incident. What I'm trying to say is that now, before we just throw everybody uh, in jail uh, because of guilt by association or because we can't prove something beyond a reasonable doubt, we now have to say and look at each individual actor's intent and determine what their culpability was in the crime. And if the government in this case could have proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Lewis was the driver, or for that fact, even though they didn't allege it, that Mr. Wilson was the driver, or that Mr. Wilson was a major participant who acted with reckless indifference, or that Mr. Lewis was a major participant who acted with reckless indifference, then these individuals would not be getting out today, nor would they have gotten out 13 years ago under the new law. And what's really interesting, and we had um, Nikki Solis on earlier on this program, um, you know, one of the things that I think the district attorney um, messed up was trying to prove that Emmett Lewis was the driver when there really wasn't much evidence other than the one witness that, uh, that said he was. The, and, and that is very true. Um, but, you know, looking at this case from the lens of, uh, 14, or, uh, uh, 1437 as it is today, or, or, or the felony murder rule as it is today, uh, it was a, a tough, 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 tough case now for the prosecution to win. Um, because back in 2003, uh, the facts and the law were against Mr. Lewis and Mr. Wilson. And now in 2019, the facts and the law were for them. And so, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I mean, you know, that, you know, we have, as a society, and at least in California, decided that the felony murder rule 
is just unfair and that it divorced intent from action. And now uh, there has been more, um, you know, accountability with regard to criminal intent and, and actor. And so that's, you know, we're just, that's what I'll say. And I, I guess that's, that's my last question here. Um, you know, placing the, the felony murder rule reform within kind of the broader context of criminal justice reform. Is it really that you were uh, punishing people that really didn't play any role in somebody dying? Well, that's what's so amazing about this new law is that it now bars prosecutors from using a person's intent to commit one crime, for example, a robbery, as a way to hold them responsible for a murder committed during the course of that robbery, unless that they can prove that the person was the actual killer, had intent to kill, was a major participant who acted with, you know, reckless indifference. Um, and so this law is a game changer. It makes DAs actually prove the element and do what they're supposed to do under law, i.e. prove each element and culpability. And, and, and they haven't been doing that since day one in California when it comes to felony murder rules, at least as they accomplished it. Great. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Let me just, and then let me add a, a few other things just if you want to put those in there, uh, you know, as, as well. Um, and, you know, the, the obviously the, the felony murder rule, uh, this concept is in, important to myself uh, and to my family, and more importantly, uh, to my younger brother. Um, he was the uh, first person released based upon the new uh, 1437 in October of last year. Uh, and it was because of folks like Kate Chatfield. It was because of Nancy Skinner. Uh, and it was Senator Nancy Skinner. It was because of, uh, you know, Governor Jerry Brown. All of them had the foresight to say, hey, look, that this law is unjust and that we need to change it. And, you know, it was an army of women, for the most part, who helped bring about this change. It was a lot of the folks that restored justice as well. And, you know, the whole principle behind the felony murder rule is that it's just inherently uh, unfair. And, you know, in California, you know, 40% of black males are convicted under the felony murder. Uh, you know, you have 72% of women serving life in California who did not kill anyone. You know, 26 percent of juveniles nationwide, it is estimated, are doing life cell walk sentences because of the, the felony murder rule. And you know what? It costs $80,000 a year to put someone in a cage. And a lot of these folks who we're talking about were juveniles or who were youngsters, and they did things that were regrettable, but they didn't kill anyone. And so... You know, this law is just, it's, it's amazing because, you know, those folks who have been convicted of murder, who did not put a hand on anyone, who did not kill anyone, who did not intend to kill anyone, now they have an opportunity to have that murder conviction thrown out so that they will not be labeled a murderer anymore. And more importantly, uh, going forward, 
with open cases right now or cases that are now being litigated in cases in the future, hopefully a family member won't have to go through what my younger brother went through or, or what I went through or what my family went through, which is that in my brother's case, he didn't intend to kill anyone. He wasn't at the scene. He didn't attempt to kill anyone. He did not know anyone was going to be killed. And he was initially facing the death penalty, you know, and that is for something that and he didn't kill anyone. That's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. He did not kill anyone. Uh, and to be labeled a murderer for 10 years until he was released um, was just, it's, it's overwhelming. And, and hopefully now folks won't have to go through something like that. And I'm not, and I'm not saying 1437, the new changes to the felony murder rule, the new changes to the natural and probable consequence doctrine. This doesn't mean that killers and, and, and others just walk out the door. It's not a get out of jail free card. What it does is now it says, hey, look, that we're going to look at the individual actions of each person. And, and that's what's so important. It's no longer just guilt by association, okay? Um, you know, or, you know, birds of a flood are flocked together, so they must be all guilty. No, we're going to look at each individual person's culpability. And, and that's what's huge about this law. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been the Vanguard Court Watch podcast, and we've been talking about 1437, the reform of the felony murder rule. And we talked to Nikki Solis and Jaku Wilson, both work for the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. Thank you for listening to our show, and have a good week.